0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extraordinarily delighted to have the honor of introducing Professor Eric Omsby to you this evening. Professor Omsby comes to us from the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London, where he is currently Professor and Senior Research Associate after serving as their Chief Librarian. Formerly, he was a member of the faculty of McGill University as director of libraries and full professor, having taught previously at the Catholic University of America and Princeton University. He's the winner of several fellowships at Columbia, Princeton, and Cambridge University. Professor Ormsby's extensive list of publications clearly manifests that, recalling a famous dictum by Goethe, more than one soul dwells in his breast. Zwei Seelen wohnen in meiner Brust. In addition to his study of Al Ghazali, begun with his dissertation at Princeton University, published 1984 under the title Theodicy in Islamic Fat. A dispute over al-Ghazali's best of all possible worlds and selected as an outstanding academic book, he's a celebrated poet of acclaimed international reputation and a translator of challenging writings in different languages. His book, Ghazali, The Revival of Islam, Oxford 2008, provides a concise and brilliant introduction into Al-Ghazali's realm of ideas. Among his forthcoming publications is a translation of Al-Ghazali's book of love, longing, intimacy, and satisfaction. <laughs> well, philosophical or mystical? <laughs> book 36 of the magnum Opus Ihyya <laughs> Ulum din with an introduction and notes. From his numerous poetry collections, I would like to mention the award-winning Bavarian Shrine and other poems published in 1990, and The Baboons of Hada, which appeared in 2011. He has also published poems in a variety of American, British, and Canadian magazines, as well as in anthologies. Some of his poems have been already translated into other languages. He's also the author of hundreds of essays and reviews in newspapers and magazines. And I shall not forget his edited volume on Moses Maimonides and his forthcoming translations of Jamal Hikmatain by Nasiri Khosrow, uh, from Persian, and Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's notes and essays on the West Eastern divan from German. Professor Olmsby will speak tonight on the comedy of reason strategies of humor in Al Ghazali. And as I already told you, I wish I could have included such a paper in my volume, Humor in Arabic Culture. As we are all looking forward to his speech, Please join me welcoming Professor Eric Armstrong.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Tomer. <clears throat> I must echo my uh, the other speakers today and in expressing my deep gratitude and the sense of honor this occasion uh, has conferred on not only on me but on all of us. I hope you'll bear with me if I present a somewhat Different slant on Al Ghazali, uh, perhaps more lighthearted, uh, to conclude the day. Ladies and gentlemen, for most philosophers, and certainly for most theologians, humor is no laughing matter. As a, re- a sco- modern scholar has recently commented, laughter is a serious business. True, there is Democritus of Abdera, known as the laughing philosopher about whom that ancient gossip Aelian wrote, and I quote, Democritus laughed at everyone and said they were all mad, which led his fellow citizens to call him Galasinus, the laughing one. But the laughter of Democritus leaves a bitter aftertaste. It springs from mockery. Of course, philosophers from Aristotle to Bergson have shown a conspicuous interest in laughter, that puzzling yet quintessentially human trait. For Henri Bergson in his classic treatise of 1924, Le Rire, and I quote, laughter addresses itself to pure intelligence, end quotes. Bergson didn't know it, but he was, his view was anticipated by several centuries by Abu Suleiman al Mantiki, al Sijistani, as reported by Abu Hayyan al tahiri For Abu Suleiman, <coughs> laughter occurs from the collision between articulate reason and animality those two essential components of human nature. Jokes surprise us with amazement, he says. Sorry, I wrote this on the plane too. (laughs) Uh, And our reason tries to understand the source of this amazement, while our animality, our directs our response to the joke either inwardly or outwardly producing amusement or anger, as the case may be. This is one aspect of the comedy of reason in my title. However, humor stimulates reflection. But from another side, there seems to be something irrational, something non-rational or not rational about laughter. It not only castigates morals in the classic maxim, it castigates reason itself. Certainly philosophers and even theologians, a grimmer bunch, avail themselves of irony, mockery, and caricature of opposing views. Think of the well-honed device of reductio ad absurdum. But such devices like the laughter of Democritus have harsh echoes. It's not that they aren't sometimes funny, but that they're lacking in two of the profoundest aspects of true humor, gaiety and geniality. I think you would all agree with me that a book called The Humor of Heidegger would be a very slim volume indeed. (laughs) Here I want to argue that Ghazali avails himself of the vices of humor in many of his works and that he does so strategically. I want to argue this in the teeth of the evidence, so to speak, for no one would embark upon a reading of the Ikhya, al uh, or the, the Tahafut al-Filasifa, or others amongst his works with any expectation of rollicking high humor. Nevertheless, I want to argue that Ghazali does use humor quite consciously in several of his works. Sometimes it's his humor of a conventional sort, but at others his humor is broader, subtler, infused with a rare geniality. And to recognize this, I believe, is to understand something fundamental about his work, and particularly about the Ihyar. Now, over the past several years, I've been engaged in translating books 36 of the Ihyar, the Kitab al mahabbah for the Islamic Text Society. And by the way, if any of you are looking for Christmas presents, it's being printed as we speak. In working closely with the Arabic text, my first concern was to understand what Ghazali was actually saying and to convey that understanding in accurate English. But of course, accuracy is not simply a matter of fidelity to the meanings of the text. Style and tone are essential too. As I struggled with the text, I was often struck by the suppleness of his style, ranging from the sarcastic and even the smutty to the soaringly sublime. And I was struck too by his range of tones, and the way in which he modulates those tones for greater effect. Too often, I think, we read Roselli only for what he says, but pay too little attention to how he says it. Certain passages struck me as gently comical, but at the same time I was puzzled. Was I reading something into the text? Was I reading it in a way alien to the author's intentions? These questions lead me to two possible obstacles to what I am proposing tonight, and I need to deal with them before proceeding. First, humor is notorious for its elusiveness. It is very slippery to define. While we can agree that man is the only animal that laughs, we don't all laugh at the same things. What one person finds hilarious, another finds inane, and the same is true of cultures. As our host, Professor Tamer, has put this well in his introduction to his fascinating collection, Humor in Arabic Culture, Humor in Arabic Culture, when he notes, that the forms of humor, and I quote, vary in different ages and cultures so that what seems to be a universal quality of humankind reveals itself in fact to be essentially determined by the specific individual and social contexts in which it occurs. To deal in a scholarly way with humor reveals itself indeed to be a humorless business. Now this is a genuine difficulty. The barriers of time and place appear insuperable. What provoked laughter in Ghazali's Baghdad is likely to fall flat in 21st century Columbus, and nothing falls flatter than a joke mummified by eons of incomprehension. On the other hand, certain jokes enjo- enjoy a lively immortality wherever they are told. Like proverbs or folk tales, they travel the world without benefit of passport. In his witty introduction to Franz Rosenthal's recently reissued classic, Humor in Early Islam, uh, Gert van den Gelder remarks that, and I quote again, jokes and anecdotes have a habit of jumping like fleas, easily attaching themselves from one person to another. One such flea has had an exceptionally long life. Let's see if it still has some spring in its legs. In his notes and essays on the West Eastern Divan, that marvelous collection of lyric poems based on Arabic and Persian motifs, Goethe retells a humorous anecdote about Nasruddin Hoja, whom Goethe calls with reference to Timurlenk, the dread world destroyer's jocular companion in both tent and battlefield. Here's the story. Timur was an ugly fellow. He was blind in one eye and lame in one foot. One day when Hoja was with him, Timur scratched his beard. It was time for a haircut and commanded that the barber be summoned. After he'd shaved his head, the barber put a mirror in Timur's hand as usual. Timur looked at himself in the mirror and found his appearance exceedingly ugly. He started to weep. Hoja began to weep too, and the two of them went on weeping for a few hours. At this, one of Timur's companions comforted him and entertained him with strange tales so that he might forget everything. Timur stopped crying, but Hoja did not. In fact, he began crying even more strongly. Timur stopped. Uh, Excuse me. At last, Timur said to Hoja, listen, I looked in the mirror and I saw how ugly I was. I was saddened by this because not only am I emperor, but I also have great property and many slaves. And yet, I am so very ugly. That's why I cried. But why do you keep on crying without cease? The Hoja replied, if you looked in the mirror just once and at the sight of your own face you couldn't stand looking at yourself, what should we do who have to look at your face by day and by night? If we don't weep, who should? Now this story uh, was centuries old when Goethe read and repeated, repeated it, but I feel justified in, ins- in asserting, and I think you've proved my case, that the laughter it provokes overlaps the centuries. Still there's another obstacle uh, to what I'm proposing. Namely, how does ghazali himself view humor and more specifically joking? Doesn't he tend to condemn it? In several passages, he does condemn laughter and joking. In one such, he asks, why is joking called Mizah? And he replies with a play on the verb "Azaha," which means uh, both to jest and to drive away, because it pulls the man who laughs away from the truth, an al-haq, or from God. In the same context, he notes that, and I quote, nobody laughs on his deathbed. For laughter, he says, is a sign of heedlessness, a rafla of the hereafter. Despite these strictures which occur uh, in his treatment of the vices of the tongue in the ekhya, his final position is more nuanced than this might suggest. For he fully recognizes that as Jahaz had stated over two centuries before in the opening pages of his uh, Book of Misers, the Kitab al bukhara laughter lies at the root of human nature. Moreover, laughter, like weeping, comes ultimately from God. As proof, Jahaz cites Quran 53, 44, It is he, God, who makes one laugh and weep, and it is he who causes death and brings life. Jo has comments on the implications of the verses striking chiasmus by noting that God, and I quote, put laughter opposite life and weeping opposite death. Now with regard to joking or banter, (coughs) uh, Mutayaba, Razelli writes, when gaiety and goodness of heart are present, joking and bantering are not forbidden, but know that what is forbidden is excessiveness, ifrot, or persistence in jocularity. Persistence involves a preoccupation with playfulness and jest, and though playfulness is licit, persistence in it is reprehensible. Excess, on the other hand, produces too much laughter. Too much laughter kills the heart. And I note in passing uh, that Bergson, again, in his uh, Le Rire, makes a similar statement, remarking that, quotes, in the end, to produce its complete effect, the comical requires something like a momentary anesthesia of the heart. Achazali's reflections on joking and laughter almost always have an ethical and juridical focus. He asks, for example, how does, la- how does laughter relate to the sunnah of the Prophet? Now we know on the authority of certain traditions that the prophet not only laughed but joked. Indeed, according to one report, he used to laugh until his back teeth were visible. In several hadiths, we are told that, quotes, the emissary of God smiled and laughed. Razali gives the following tradition as well. The emissary, and this is an example, I think, of a prophetic joke. Uh, The emissary of God saw eating dates when one of his eyes was infected. He asked, do you eat dates when you have an eye infection? And Sohaib answered, "O emissary of God, I eat only on the other side, meaning on the sound side of his face. And the emissary of God laughed. And one of his companions remarked that he had never seen anyone who smiled as much as the prophet did. To the question as to why laughter may be reprehensible since we know that the prophet and his companions laughed and joked. Uh, Rezeli replies, and I quote, if you can do what the prophet and his companions did, namely to joke but to speak only the truth, not to wound the heart nor to be excessive in joking and to limit it to infrequent occasions, then nothing prevents you from doing so. But it is, a great, it is a great mistake for a man to set about joking as a way of life or to go on and on with it and overdo it and then excuse himself by referring to the behavior of the prophet. The notion that joking should speak only the truth is important here. It lies at the heart of Ghazali's own use of humor. In his discussion of the faults of the tongue, Ghazali lists the criteria for permis- per- permissible jocularity, muzah mashru'. First, the joke must be far from falsehood. When the Prophet said to Anas, O you with the two ears, it was both gently amusing and incontrovertibly true. Second, a joke should should neither be exaggerated nor long drawn out. Third, a joke must not cause bad feeling or enmity. Elsewhere in his Mizan al-Amal, which we've heard about today, a very interesting detail, Ghazali lists unkind jokes as one of the main causes of anger. Fourth, a joke must neither intimidate nor frighten. Fifth, all bawdiness must be avoided. And sixth, a joke should be expressed in fine words, or as Ghazali puts it, in friendly words and well-meaning expressions. And here I should acknowledge the wonderful article which Professor Kravitz has written on this whole subject of the juridical restrictions on joking, according to Ghazali, which I benefited from. Now here, matters of decorum are intertwined with ethical concerns. If most writers on the subject condemn excess and especially that boisterous horse laughter known by the wonderful word qaha in Arabic, Ghazali seems to me to stand out for his insistence on truthfulness in jest. This criterion guides his own practice. Let me offer now a few examples, starting with irony. Ghazali often avails himself of irony for humorous effect especially at the expense of doctors and most especially of the ulama. The religious scholars are recurrent subjects of scorn in the Ikhya and elsewhere in his works. In the Bidayat Al-Hadaya for example he goes so far as to call them scholars of wickedness, Al-Ama al-sul). He seldom misses an opportunity to expose them to jibes, side swipes, and caustic dismissals. In the following example, he puts a wry twist on the fault known as what I might call slovenly complacency, which he elsewhere denounces roundly, as we've also heard today. In explaining why it is impermissible to share mystical knowledge with ordinary people, most of whom he says are, quotes, like the baffled man about whom the saying was coined when he is mounted on his donkey, he keeps looking for his donkey. He states, if people were to share in mystical knowledge the world would go to ruin. Wisdom requires that heedlessness, exist for the world to thrive. If all people were to eat only permitted foods for 40 days, the world would fall apart because of their austerity. Markets, uh, not to mention livelihoods, would be ruined. Even more, if religious scholars were to eat nothing but permitted foods, they would become occupied only with themselves. Their tongues and their feet would grind to a halt and cease from much that they do now on one level of course this is sheer common sense in regard to the in regard to the religious scholars however the irony seems to be unmistakable the continuous continuance of the world requires their heedlessness Ghazali often uses the example of sexual impotence to ironic effect those who cannot experience the truth through taste the famous are like the impotent man who cannot appreciate the pleasures of sexual intercourse, and so he denies them. ghazali uses homely comparisons to make this point, and again, the effect, in my opinion at least, is gently humorous, and I quote, to assert to young boys that the pleasures of sexual intercourse are superior to those of playing with a polo stick is impossible, just as it is to assert to the impotent that sexual pleasure is superior to the pleasure of sniffing violets. <laughs> the impotent man has lost the ability by which he could perceive this pleasure, but he who is unimpaired by impotence and who possesses an intact sense of smell perceives the difference between the two pleasures. On this there is nothing to say but, he who has tasted, knows manvaka arava. The introduction of the polo stick and the sniffing of violets imparts a sly humor to what is otherwise a serious and truthful point and in the late work Ayuhal-Weled, he is much blunter. An impotent man wrote to a friend of his to tell him what the pleasure of sex was like. So the friend wrote back to him, oh so and so, I thought you were just impotent. Now I know that you are impotent and stupid. The friend's rejoinder is funny, but in keeping with Roselli's criterion of truthfulness and jest, it has a serious point. And he, as he goes on to explain, this pleasure has to do with direct experience. If you attain it, you know it. Otherwise, the description of it is not furnished through talking and writing. Let me turn now to what I call Sufi humor, for want of a better term. Like his Sufi predecessors, such as Abu Talib al-Makki or al-Khushayri, uh, from whose works he ransacked so much, Afrazelli likes to use tales and anecdotes to reinforce his arguments. Quite often, these are blithely facetious. This is one facet of his various stratagems of persuasion. After all, a funny story, like a good joke, sticks in the mind. Many of these anecdotes exemplify a peculiar Sufi humor, hard to define, but quite unmistakable. They are droll at, and paradoxical at once, and they stimulate reflection. Let me just give, uh, let me l- jump ahead by a century or so and give one example of a little apologue in verse by Attar. Which exemplifies what I'm trying to say. Uh, an apologue is a verse fable with a moral, like the fables of La Fontaine. And I quoted in the translation by uh, Edward Fitzgerald, with apologies to Dick Davis, uh, whose translations I admire enormously, but there's a reason for this. A fellow all his life lived hoarding gold, and dying hoarded left it. And behold, one night his son saw peering through the house a man. Yet with the semblance of a mouse, watching a crevice in the wall, and cried, My father? Yes, the Mussulman replied, Thy father. But why watching thus? For fear lest any smell my treasure buried here. But wherefore, sir, so metamousified? Because, my son, such is the true outside of the inner soul by which I lived and died. And of course, Fitzgerald catches the essential humor of this by that clever coinage metamalsified. Henri Corbin has suggested that Sufi humor represents an attempt to establish a certain distance from the self. It is part of a discipline of detachment. As an illustration, consider some anecdotes about Abu Sa'id ibn Abu Khair, uh, the Khurasanian saint of the previous generation whom Ghazali offered quotes. A man said to Abu Said, I saw your disciple so-and-so on the road last night and he was blind drunk. To which Abu Said replied, Alhamdulillah, at least he was on the road. (laughs) And in later life, Abu Said was very fat, a fact which exposed him to criticism from grimmer and thinner colleagues. One of them said to him, your throat is so thick that it hardly fits through your collar. Abu Sa'id replied, to me it seems even more remarkable that my neck, thanks to all that God has bestowed on me, fits it all in the frame of the seven heavens. This rejoinder seems to me to contain many of the elements of what I call Sufi humor. It is at once exuberant and self-mocking, and yet while it expresses genuine gratitude to God, it is also, I I don't know how else to put this, self-effacingly self-aggrandizing. It uses humor to make a complex and paradoxical point. As Fritz Meyer has shown in his his magnificent book on the subject, for this saint, known for his expansive cheerfulness, corpulence and jubilance were intimately conjoined. Now, Ghazelli shares much of this geniality with his Florisanian countrymen, but his humor can also be harsh. And it is significant, I think, that he turns to anecdote when he wishes to be most scathing Thus, on the subject of Baghdad, he quotes the Sufi master Ibn al-Mubarak. When asked, what is your opinion of Baghdad, that saint exclaimed, there I saw only raging policemen and anxious business businessmen and baffled reciters of the Quran. Again, when Fudail ibn Iyad asked a visiting Sufi where he lived and the man replied Baghdad, Fudayl averted his face and said, when we ask him where he dwells, he answers, in the nest of darkness. Even stronger is the statement Ghazali cites by Bishr al-Harith, Bishr the Barefoot, who declared, someone who worships God in Baghdad is like one who worships him in the toilet. <laughs> now it's possible that such denunciations of Baghdad, which Ghazali obviously relishes, and he goes on at some length about this, uh, may represent an oblique and retrospective justification for his own abrupt departure from that city after his conversion to the Sufi way. But there are other anecdotes which, seem, which he seems to include purely for their entertainment value, though these too have a serious underlying point. For example, of Junai, it is related, related that he said, our master, Saria saqati was sick and we could neither find a remedy for his illness nor could we discover its cause. We were told of a clever doctor. And so we took a vial of Sari's urine to him. The doctor looked at it again and again for a long time. And then he said, I see that this is the urine of a man in love. Junaid went on. I was stunned. I fell into a faint and the vial dropped from my hand. I went back to Sari and told him what had happened he smiled and said of the doctor, what a sharp-eyed son of a bitch. I said, "O master, does love show even in the urine? He replied, yes. Here's one more, one of many I should say, which Ghazali relates in book 11 of the Echia in a discussion of table manners. Again, I think mainly to amuse. Abu Wa'il said, I went with a friend of mine to visit Salman al-Farisi and he presented us with barley bread and coarsely ground salt. My friend said, If there were some wild thyme in this salt, it would be tastier. Salomon went out and pawned his ablution bowl and brought some wild thyme. When we had eaten, my friend said, praise be to God, who has made us content with what we've been provided. Salomon said, had you been content with what had been provided, my ablution bowl would not be in the pawn shop. Such tales, little more than jokes in many cases, are important because they illustrate a fundamental characteristic not only of Sufi humor, but of Ghazali's own form of humor and of Sufism. They are characterized by that same gaiety, that in which typifies the practice of such earlier masters as Abu Sa'id ibn Abu Khair. And I would argue that they constitute an essential aspect of the Ikhya. They're an intrinsic part of its pervasive and thoroughgoing humanity. This light-heartedness finds its warrant in the fact that, as Ghazali tells us, God himself is given to laughter. Al-Qushairi, one of his masters, had declared, God's laughter is the manifestation of his beneficence. Thanks to the work of Professor Tamer, we know, and probably enough, that there's even humor in the Quran. <laughs> in the Kitab al-Mahabba, Ghazali takes this farther. In one of the tales he inserts about Bukh al aswad the black slave who is part of that company of holy fools, out of whose mouths wisdom comes in the form of jokes and jibes and boisterous wrangles with God. During a drought, Moses asks Burch to beseech God for rain. Burk rebukes God for withholding the rains. He says, what is this that you're doing? Is this what you call mildness? Whatever are you thinking? Are you short on springs of water? Have the winds refused to obey you? Are your supplies exhausted? You created compassion and commanded kindness. Will you show us now that you are hindered?" Buch went on in this vein until the rains came pouring down and drenched the Israelites, and in less than a day, the grass sprang up to their knees. Moses was irritated with Buch, but God revealed to him, Buch makes me laugh three times a day. As a final example of Rezeli's use of humor, this time at the expense of the contortions of reason itself, I want to offer a few comments on the notorious 17th chapter of the *Tahafut al-Falasifa*, in which he rejects or appears to reject natural causation. We've already heard earlier today about the 16th chapter from Professor Diab. You will recall that he opens this chapter with a blatant, a blatant denial of cause and effect, adducing a series of examples which seem to fly in the face of common sense. Cotton burns when touched by a flame. Death follows decapitation. Eating and drinking satisfy hunger and quench thirst, and so on. Such phenomena merely coincide, he claims. They're not causally linked. Fire burns cotton, and cotton is consumed, not because of some intrinsic quality in either substance, but because such is God's habit or custom, عادة. This seems straightforward, but in fact, as we all know, and know even better today, it is not. For as he writes in the 35th book of the إحياء, If you were to wait for God Most High to create satiety in you without bread, or to create in bread a motion towards you, or to enjoin an angel to chew it for you and see that it reaches your stomach, that would simply display your ignorance of the practice, the Ada, of God Most High. Even here in the notion of an angel chewing your bread for you, we see the characteristic of sense of irony at play. In pursuing his argument, ostensibly in defense of the Asherite denial of secondary causality, Roselli introduces a curious counter-argument which is as surprising as it is comical. It represents a caricature of his own presumed position. Moreover, it is an extravagant uh, elaboration, virtually a lampooning of the very concept of intellectual admissibility, which he had championed earlier in such doctrinal works as the to deny cause and effect is to inundate existence with bizarre and patternless events on the grounds that if they are merely conceivable, they are also possible. And this is what he says. If someone leaves a book in the house, let him allow as possible its change on his returning home into a beardless slave boy, intelligent, busy with his tasks, or into an animal If he leaves a boy in the house, let him allow the possibility of its change into musk, of his change into musk. If asked about any of this, he ought to say, I don't know what's in the house at the moment. All I know is that I left a book in the house, but maybe now it's a horse which has fouled my library with its piss and dung. And I've left a jar of water in the house too, but it may have turned into an apple tree by now. God is capable of everything." Mm -hmm. Now this is funny and deliberately so. It's a witty caricature of the Asherite position put in the mouth of a critic of that school. In one sense, of course, it's simply another a reductio ad absurdum of an opposing position exaggerated for effect. But in another sense, it's a mockery of such critics, since we all know that the world does not proceed in this zany and topsy-turvy fashion. For all practical purposes, God's custom is as dependable as cause and effect. But it seems to me, too, that in a sly way, Roselli's preemptive parody of his own supposed position is also meant to demonstrate that neither position can be proved by reason alone. It uses the surprise of humor, the shock of a joke, both to satirize reason and to startle it awake. It is a parody of reason taken to the extreme, and humor is the vehicle of that parody. In conclusion, I would suggest that Roselli's use of humor in its various guises <coughs> is but one facet of the profound humanity of his work and of the Echia in particular. The Echia, after all, begins with a book of knowledge and progresses through all aspects of human life, from the daily ritual of obligations, through ethics and manners, destroying vices and saving virtues, to the deathbed itself. It is no exaggeration to say of it that, in a certain sense, all human life is here. Indeed, for ghazali no detail of human life is too slight or too negligible to be drawn into a forceful analogy. He was a keen observer of the human scene. Whether he speaks of chess, of which he remarks wryly that those who love the game never shut up about it, or of polo, or of the dealings of the marketplace, or of the delights of sexual pleasure, a pleasure, he tells us, which prefigures those of paradise, he is alert to the humdrum complexities of human life. His tenderness in speaking of children, whose interests and games he often mentions, is one of the most moving aspects of this humanity. Let me just mention one example of many. In speaking of the signs of love, he says, when a boy has set his heart on something, he will not let go of it. If it is taken from him, he weeps and screams until it is given back to him. When he goes to sleep, he takes it with him inside his clothes. When he wakes, he returns to it and holds it tight. Whenever he has to part with it, he cries. Whenever he finds it again, he laughs. Whoever fights him over it, he hates. Whoever gives it to him, he loves. Now, no one who has lived with a small child and his favorite toy can doubt that this passage is based on observation. It is a tender, a genial observation, employed for a higher purpose, but nevertheless, profoundly human. Such instances of affectionate regard, of humor, in its broadest and most amiable aspect are strewn throughout the Ichyar, They represent one of the many and varied tones which Ghazali employs and which make his prose so often memorable. To my knowledge, no serious study has been made of his various rhetorical and stylistic devices. No exploration of his style so essential to his purpose has been made. Professor Garden has already uh, alluded to this. Isn't it time this was done? In the Ikhya Ghazali hectors and cajoles, he batters the reader and he blandishes him, and humor is one of the slyest devices in his arsenal of of persuasion. His sense of humor exemplifies that gaiety, that geniality, that inbisot, (coughs) uh, so fundamental to certain Sufis. But this truthful humor, which Ghazali deploys, has deeper roots. Like sexual pleasure, it too presages the ultimate joy of paradise. His older contemporary, Nasiri Khosrow, yet another Khurasanian, explained the link between laughter and joy in his final work, the where he states, echoing the remark of Aristotle with which we began, that, and I quote, of all animals, only man who possesses a rational soul partakes of laughter. The philosopher sages have posited one definition of man as living laughing, and laughing is a manifestation of happiness this particular human trait of laughter stands as proof that ultimate bliss is proper to the intellect. Despite their massive differences, doctrinal as well as political, I think that Ghazali would have agreed with this statement by the Ismaili poet and philosopher. You knew I had to bring the Ismailis in, of course. (laughs) Laughter and joking, truthful laughter and joking, are not only ineradicable components of the human being, they're also manifestations of joyousness and as such, They prefigure paradise. It is no accident that laughter simultaneously baffles reason and nourishes it. For in the end, as the poet says, joy is the very substance of the intellect. Thank you. Yes. Mm. Oh yes, absolutely. But it has humor. Yes. Is that what you said? Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, as you know, in the bukhala the first part of the Bukhala is a defense of joking and laughter and uh, saying that it's a central component of the human constitution. Uh, although the fact that he feels need, the need to justify it is interesting too, though, That he, and at some length, uh, that he feels the need to do this. And I, uh, another point I would make is that in many respects, in reading the Ikhya, and especially in translating, and I'm often reminded of works of Adab, such as those of Jahaz and uh, the Tahidi and others. Uh, he obviously was familiar with these works. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, I guess they didn't know about the hyena or the kookaburra. (laughs) Yes? I want
2: to thank you for a very thorough presentation. Your students, my friends in London, uh, told me I was in for a treat. (laughs) I I wanted to ask your personal opinion about
1: Ibn Hazm, his sense of humor. Yes, that's a a very good point. I mean, the the sharp sort of witticism, is that not? He's a little too harsh. You know, what's the saying? uh, The tongue of Ibn Hazm and the sword of Hajjaj, Ibn Yusuf, are brothers? (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: I mean, sometimes he is funny, but uh, of course, when he turns this on himself, it can be very, very impressive, you know, as he does in his ethical work, where he talks about he always wants to be right and he's so quick to anger and so forth, but it's not really funny. Although there are humorous things in the Taq al Hamama, where he talks about how he always fell in love with blondes, and he remarks that. Caliphs, of course, prefer blondes, you know, and, <laughs> and he has great fun at the expense of the fuqaha, always telling these disgraceful stories about their love affairs. Uh, so, but it's satirical and, and somewhat bitter, I think, or angry. Oh, he's a great writer, I think. Yeah. And Ghazali had read him. He quotes him. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, sir.
2: Huh, that's a good question.
1: <laughs> I think so. I don't want to exaggerate this. I mean, of course, this is one element, one relatively small element, after all. I mean, it, as I said, it's not. When you read the, yeah, you're not laughing on every page, <laughs> far from it. And yet, it is there, along with many other notes and tones, which, in my opinion, people don't notice when they read it. They're always interested in what he says, uh, who who influenced him. You know, what does he make of this? But his style is remarkable, I think. I mean, a native speaker would have to, would have to comment on that. But uh, uh, he, he moved, he's a master of modulation. You know, he'll go from some silly story, some amusing story, to some flight of rapture that's quite astonishing, sometimes within the same page. Uh, and I do think that contributes to its enduring popularity. I, I think people find it enjoyable to read. Um, it's amusing, but it's also very profound and serious at the same time. And it has, it's this, it has a great variety, in my opinion.
2: The second, second question more, more broad. Do you sometimes find that there's something limiting about attempts to often by religious scholars to, to codify or set limits on humor? know these are for many forms of humor, precisely the breaking of limits, or, or uh, as is often said, if everybody laughs, then it can't be that funny. <laughs> Yeah, I,
1: I think so. I think so, and I think it's why laughter, the phenomenon of laughter, has been a puzzle to philosophers at least since Aristotle, uh, and continues to be. Really, I mean, when Aristotle discusses why we laugh when we're tickled, uh, it's not funny, but you can't help but laugh because it's so ponderous. You know, I mean, here's this this serious philosopher discussing tickling, in in this very heavy-handed, way, so to speak, way. Um, I think there is something that escapes us in it. But it may, I think maybe Abu Suleiman had the right idea that it's this clash between our, our, our need to explain things and our sheer animal nature, you know, that there's some kind of strange collision there. One I think you in some of the
2: stories
1: in Yes, those are good examples. Yeah. Well, and sometimes they Sometimes they seem to be inserted just for their own, uh, val- amusement value too. I mean, it, it, who can tell the the most witticisms? And I, I think Roselli does do that sometimes, maybe just as a way of enlivening his his discourse. Uh, of course, I, I could be wrong on some of this. Maybe what I find funny it wasn't meant to be funny. You know, you always have to allow that possibility. But. I tried to pick examples, which, most of which I thought were amusing still, uh, and truthful. <laughs> yes. Uh, I've, I've learned to dread your questions.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, yes. I I don't recall any specific example. I mean, certainly he insults people, yes. I mean, the way he talks about the Alamed, the way he talks, well, he insults the philosophers, of course, in in the Tahafut at the beginning, uh, calling them all kinds of nasty names, and implying they're quite stupid. Um, (laughs) Well, I guess he, I I don't recall that he he insults him by name, but I I could be wrong. Someone else might know better than I about that. Uh, he seems to insult them more as a group. You know, like with the Olama, he doesn't mention a particular person. It's a class, you know, it's, to which he belonged, after all. So he knew it well. I was just wondering, if I've
2: done with you, there's always this thing that you have
1: to be moderate so to take the middle of way. Yes. This might it is difficult as to you. Oh, absolutely. In this, he also follows Jahez. Well, I think, yes, yes. The ethics and a lot of what he says in his, uh, the criteria I listed, of course, some of the, much of it goes back to Jahas and other earlier writers. It's a matter of decorum as well as of ethics, uh, of proper behavior. Um, that seems to be a constant, Professor Kravitz would know better than I, but. This, this uh, idea of kind of regulating laughter, of trying to find a way of uh, fitting it into the scheme of things in an acceptable fashion seems to be part and parcel of this. I mean, all the writers I've read on this say the same thing, no loud laughter, uh, don't go on and on with it, uh, there's no room for a stand-up comic in this world, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. But uh, by, by bending it to an expression of the truth as the prophet did, he makes it acceptable. Or he tries to anyway. yes i I can't hear you yes, 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 a fault of the tongue, you know. Satire? A lot. He uses a lot of
2: satire.
1: He uses satire often, uh, especially, again, about the scholars. Uh, and he also often takes kind of ironic gi- uh, stabs at doctors, physicians, whom he seems to have a special animus towards uh, perhaps because they couldn't cure him, when, whether his crisis was real or not. <laughs> uh, or maybe he thought they were rivals in a certain sense. And of course, doctors were often philosophers, I okay. Yes? Yeah, um, a
2: question related to the purpose of to the laughter. Purpose for, of? To the purpose of laughter, again, yeah. for Abbas Ali. In a specific instance, you're talking about sexual pleasure
1: We know seven what's men, in the beds. There's <laughs> <seven> mattresses. There <laughs> so many mattresses there,
2: so many a or yeah. something, waiting for invirgens uh waiting for 'em. And then Hong Zongs had may you only have the strength to enjoy all <laughs>
1: I would say, uh, there are lots of, there's a lot to say about that, but one thing I would say is that it strikes me in reading the Ikhya that Ghazali is very, very uh, concerned with the human body. Uh, he often uses the body, the senses as examples. It's, it's a very um, uh, this-worldly, I mean, uh, it's a discussion of the Mu'amalat, after all, not the Mu'kashafat, but um, his, his interest in the body is quite remarkable, and I think that's part of it. It's part of that corporeal identity we have, uh, but I don't have a real answer for you. <laughs> I think it's just, uh, you know, it's something you can't deny, uh, as, as Jah has said, it's something in nature, in, in the, at the root of our nature, uh, and I don't think Ghazali would want to deny it, but he wants to, to put limits on it. Mm-hmm. But I think it has to do, I think it also has to do with this sense of the human body. Uh, he makes the point again and again about the senses being kind of harbingers of of what we'll experience in paradise, that they're kind of a, a sign, an instance of, of Hekma uh, in the human composition.